Open up to Psalm 120. We're starting a new series, a summer series this morning. We will be, appropriately, walking through the Psalms of Ascent. I'll tell you in a little bit what those are, but it starts with Psalm 120, and there are 15 of them. Psalm 120. As I look at the news going on right now in our country, I have a lot of different emotions, as I'm sure you do as well. As we look at the chaos of racial tensions and tension between police and people and and the murders that are going on and just the disaster and the chaos, I have anger. I'm angry over the violence that people are doing to other people. I'm angry about the bitterness and the hatred that's going on in our world that's rupturing, fracturing our society at the seams. I feel a great sense of sadness. I feel very sad about the lives that are lost, families that are being ripped apart, the hurts that are being caused and perpetuated. I have concern. I have a lot of concern. I have grave concern for the future of our country, for the future of our society. Because the way things are right now cannot continue the way they are. Something must change. Something has to happen. There's a part of me, though, that's also not surprised. When I look at Scripture and I see that we live in a sinful world, that we turned away from God and we see the effects of sin in Scripture, and then we turn on the TV or we look at the news online and we say, yep, there it is. We shouldn't be, in some sense, surprised. There's another word that's been coming to my mind, especially as I've been preparing for this sermon and for this series. It's the word dissatisfaction. I am not satisfied with the way things are. I don't think anybody, anybody, Christian, non-Christian, American, non-American, anybody can be satisfied right now with the way things are in the world. It's a mess. But especially as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am not satisfied. Things are wrong. And there's a part of me, and I hope a part of you, that's welling up saying, we've got to do something. Something has to be done. And it's a good feeling. But what? What should we do? We want to do something big. We want to change the world. But what? Calling this sermon series a long obedience in the same direction. I didn't make up that phrase. Actually, Frederick Nietzsche made up that phrase, which may surprise you a little bit if you know anything about Frederick Nietzsche, because he's not a Christian by any way, shape, or form. He was a German philosopher who believed that God was dead. And it was his way of saying, if there ever was a God, he no longer exists, or at least no longer cares, and we need to move on as if he never existed. We shouldn't care about him anymore. And so Nietzsche looked at the world, and he saw the world was messed up, much as we do today. He said somebody something needs to be done about it, much as we do today. And he said, but if there is no God, how do we make sense of this world? Nietzsche claimed that the death of God would eventually lead to the loss of any universal perspective on things, and along with it, any coherent sense of objective truth. I totally agree with Frederick Nietzsche on that. When you take God out of the picture, we are left to manufacture something to keep our society together, to keep our country together, to keep our lives together. But here's where I disagree with Nietzsche. Nothing other than God can fill that role. 
And Nietzsche coined this phrase, along obedience in the same direction, as a way to cope with the fact that we don't have a God. And he said, if we could just come together for a common purpose, common role, common mindset, and walk in that way together in unity, everything will be fine. I like to say, or think of, what he's talking about there as the American experience. Our country was sort of founded on this fact, as all countries are. If, if we can have a common set of morals and guides and, and a common law and our constitution and our rights and, and our government, and if we could just walk forward through history that way, man, this whole democracy thing, this is going to be great. And here we are today. And because God has been removed from the picture, things are not great. Things are awful. Eugene Peterson, a Greek scholar who translated uh, much of Scripture, actually, if you own the uh, translation of Scripture called The Message, that's his. He wrote that. Uh, Pretty smart guy. Also a wonderful pastor. He took that phrase, a long walk in the same direction, and he used it to write a book about the Psalms of Ascent. And he said, here is a description of people following God together, pilgrims on a journey through this world to worship God. He said it's a hard journey. It's it's a difficult and messy journey. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And we're going to walk through the Psalms of Ascent over the next nine weeks. We'll cover a few of them together. We're going to look at this long walk in the same direction. There's a lot of theories about the Psalms of Ascent. Theories like, why are they called the Psalms of Ascent? What does it mean by saying they are ascending in some way, shape, or form? One theory is that it's a poetic thing. Well, they all sort of rise poetically, which is true of some of them, but not all of them. Some say it was used by the Israelites as they returned from Babylon. They would sing these songs. They captured their hearts as they ascended or returned back to Israel, back to their place of worship. I think that's probably true, but I don't know that that's the whole picture. Some link it to a passage in Ezekiel where it describes 15 steps leading into the innermost part of the temple. So from the outer court to the inner court, or from the outside to the outer court, and from the outer court to the inner court, there were 15 steps. And maybe the priests sung these as they ascended the steps into the temple. I think that's possible, but I don't think that's the most basic usage. The most common understanding of these is that when the Israelites would leave their homes at the prescribed time each year to go to the temple or the tabernacle to worship, that these songs written over a span of history became a psalm book for them. became a song book that these 15 songs would be sung along the way to prepare them as they climbed the mountain or the hill up to Jerusalem to go and worship God. So they were ascending to a place of worship. And these were songs that they would sing along the way. And I believe there's an order to them. I believe they are put in the book of Psalms in this order because I think this was the order they sung them in. And we'll see that it is a progression of worship. For them, it was a physical pilgrimage. They were leaving their homes for a while. They were walking up a hill. They were walking into a physical temple to worship God. For us today, it's more of a spiritual journey. Every day saying, are we going to stay where we are? Are we going to allow things in our lives or in our culture to remain the way they are? Are we going to take a step of faith and follow Christ together? Are we going to live in faith? But it's not just 
a spiritual journey. It's also a physical journey. Because Christ is coming back. This world will physically change. Christ will reign on His throne and we will be with Him forever. So we are pilgrims through this world traveling to when Christ returns and we will go to be with Him forever. So where do we start? Well, let's start at the beginning with Psalm 120. Now imagine a group gathering for the purpose, or maybe a a group of travelers and others are added along the way, and they're coming up close to Jerusalem. Maybe they can see it in the distance. And I kind of picture, this is totally me, okay? I'm sure this didn't happen, but I picture like a roadside stand, you know, hey, I lead you up to Jerusalem. I know some songs I'll teach you. And they go, okay, we'll hire this tour guide. And the tour guide comes out and says, yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to take a journey of worship over the next couple of days. We'll walk up to Jerusalem. I've got some great songs to teach you along the way. These have really meant a lot to a lot of people. They prepare your heart for worship. Just beautiful, wonderful thing. And so what, what I'll do is I'll, I'll sing it for you, and then you're going to learn it, and, and we'll sing it as we go. It's really encouraging. you really like this. right? Here's the first song that I'm going to teach you. And again, this is my interpretation. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from my lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you and what more besides you, deceitful tongue? He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows and with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I live in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace, but I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Man, you throw in a fog machine and laser lights, you've got a worship service right there. I mean, it's amazing. I imagine the, the tour, tour guide kind of turning to them like, it's really catchy, isn't it? Don't you just love it? Doesn't it prepare your heart for worship? No! <laughs> Not at all! I'd be like, man, I'm out of here. This is scary. Some of you are like, what is he doing up there? Is that how they sung it? I don't think so. I have no idea. In my notes, it says, sing Psalm 120 in a melodramatic phantom of the opera sort of style. Did I hit it? Did I... <laughs> that was my... I'm not a big fan of fan of the opera, in case you wondered. In studying this psalm, it's interesting. It's an ugly psalm. I hope you're not offended by that. It is. It's ugly. The topics are ugly. Even the language, the Hebrew poetry of this psalm is ugly. It's dissonant. It's harsh. This is not pretty stuff. Why would you sing this psalm as you begin to worship? Why would you sing a psalm like this as you're walking to the temple to prepare your heart? I think it's because worship starts with a sense of holy dissatisfaction. A dissatisfaction. It starts with calling out in distress in verses 1 or two, one and 2. I call on the Lord in my distress and He answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. In the context of this psalm, the psalmist, the person writing the psalm, is saying people are lying about me. They're saying these hateful, hurtful, awful things. The word distress here means to be stuck. Stuck in a difficult place. And the author's crying out in the language of the psalm, and this is a very personal psalm. Later they were arranged to be used for public worship. But this is one author crying out to God. His heart just welling up. I'm stuck. God, these awful things are going on and he's crying out, save me, save me from these lying lips and these deceitful tongues. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt stuck? Hurt? 
maybe helpless, wondering if God's going to do anything? It doesn't really seem like the way to come to worship, does it? Man, I'm just stuck. But I think if we're honest, that is often the way we come to worship. When I turn on the TV or, or when I go online and I look at the news, that's how I feel. God, we are stuck. This is a horrible place to be in. There's a lot of lies and deceit going on. Things are bad. But then he moves on. There's a longing for change. Verses 3 and 4. What more will he do to you? And what more besides you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. There's a desire for action. The psalmist is looking at his situation, much like I think we can look at the world and say, something has to happen. I know God is a God of mercy, but also justice. I know he is sovereign. We talked about that in Sunday school. He has a plan. And then I look at the world. And it is awful tempting at times to say, God, where is it? Where's that sovereign plan? Where's the blessing that you promised? Where's this joy and this hope that are ours in Christ? Where is it? Because it's a mess. There's even a desire for retribution. The psalmist is pouring out his heart and saying, God, you need to punish these people. It's like the psalmist is calling the people out and going, saying, you're going to get it. God is God, you are not. He will bring proper retribution. I don't know about you. This is language of worship I'm not all that comfortable with. It's hard. Wait a minute. He's saying what about his enemies? He's asking God to do what? Can we do that? In context, and there is a larger context here that we will get to, but it is right to have a desire for action. It is right to have a desire for justice and even proper retribution. But it is very right to understand that's God's job, not ours. And then he arrives at dissatisfaction. Look at verses 5 through 7. Woe to me! that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. He uses these two cities, these two areas, Meshech and Kedar. They were known as barbarian places, unethical, awful places. They were far apart. It wasn't that he actually lived in a region where these two cities were. He's saying, I live in a place that's just characterized by awfulness. It's bad. It's unethical. The culture is gone in the toilet. It's horrible, and I have to live here. You ever feel like that? And he's worn down. If I put this in my my own words, it's like he's saying, God, the sandpaper is just scraping against my soul day after day after day, and I can't take it anymore. I felt like that sometimes. He's worn down. He's constantly at odds with his society, with his environment. I'm for peace, but they're constantly for war. I think that way as a a Christian. I'm for truth, but man, look at what people are running after constantly. Look at what so-and-so put on Twitter and everybody's just, woohoo, that was the most wonderful thing I've ever heard. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? That's horrible. People are doing acts of injustice and being applauded for it. There is a holy dissatisfaction in this psalm. A real and true sense that things are not right. That things are messed up. 
There's a dissatisfaction with things that are out there in the world. Look at the way the culture is. Look at the way these people are lying about me. And I think that's true today. We should have a dissatisfaction with our world. Things are not right. You don't have to be a scholar right now, I think, to discern that things are not right in our culture. But I think there's also a sense, possibly even in this psalm, that things are not right in here either. Even in our own heart. As I looked at this psalm, if you look at verse 2, save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. In context, it seems that he's talking about other people talking about him, but it actually could be him talking about himself as well. If you go further on, what more will he do to you? What more besides your deceitful tongue? He'll punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows and with burning coals of the broom bush. Some people think that he's talking about himself. I deserve to be punished. I have messed up. I don't know that it has to be one or the other. Sometimes the distress is out there in the culture, but let's be honest, sometimes like sponges, we've soaked it into our own lives as well. And we are agents of the distress. We have sin in our own life that is shaping distress for us or for those around us. And what do we do about this? How is this a starting point for a pilgrimage of worship? At this point of being dissatisfied, we could turn toward despair. We could say, oh, woe is me, it's all falling apart, nothing's ever going to get better, you better prepare yourself for the end because everything's just awful. We could do that. Or, this could cause us to look to the one who saves. This could cause us to turn from the distress to God who saves and who is in control. There's a recognition in this psalm, and I think the reason it's put at the beginning of the Psalms of Ascent is that there's a recognition, I can't stay here. This place that I'm at right now, this distress, these lies, this sin, this awfulness, I can't stay here. Something must change. The problem is, far too many become satisfied with that place. They become used to the distress. They sort of wallow in it. And maybe they don't change or they don't get out of the distress because they think they control it. Well, if I just do this and this and this, then everything will work out great. And they keep wondering why it doesn't. Well, I'll just try this other thing. And we live in the distress, but we think we control it. Some people hear the gospel or hear God's truth and they say, yes, I see the distress. I see God. Man, I want to follow Him. Some people never reach the point of dissatisfaction until they have fully feasted on all the world has to offer and only then realize it won't fulfill them. And that's hard. There are many ways to reach that dissatisfaction. Some paths are better than others. Some paths are uglier and harder than others. Some never reach a point of dissatisfaction. But when we get to that point, we have a choice. And there's a word in Scripture, repentance. And it's a word of turning from where you are. Some people think repentance is saying you're sorry. That's not repentance. Repentance is saying you're sorry and turning away from it. Repentance is saying, I'm going in this direction and this is wrong There's another direction that's right. I'm going to turn and go that way. That's the beginning of a pilgrimage of worship. Choosing to focus on the hope that God alone can bring. Choosing to walk a long, faithful obedience 
in the direction of following Jesus Christ together. In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, there's a story of Hannah. It's a fairly familiar story in Scripture. Hannah prays for a baby at the temple. God brings Samuel. But behind that familiar story, there's one that I had never heard before until I walked with uh, Reinhardt through preparing to teach the men's study a week and a half ago on Hannah. And I saw this guy, Elkanah. Elkanah was Hannah's husband. The picture is right at the end of the time of the judges. The time of the judges was messed up. It's one of the most messed up times in Scripture. This long period of this cycle of people saying, wow, this is messed up. Wow, we need God. Wow, save us. God saves them. They, so, they say, thanks God, but no thanks. We're going to do our own thing. And they just washed, rinsed, and repeated. It just kept going. Thanks for saving us. Now we've got this. And there's a phrase that rings throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a sad, tragic phrase. And so their society, their culture was corrupt. And here's Elkanah. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's another description of their society. How do I put this gently? The sons of the high priest were having inappropriate relationships with the women serving at the entrance to the tabernacle. So you've got this horrible culture, the cycle of the judges. You've got this messed up place of worship. Talk about a screwed up, messed up, distressed world. I imagine Elkanah as this man of faith, this man of righteousness, man, I thought, I'm going to do something about this. And you know what he did? It says in 1 Samuel 1.3, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship. He made a choice to just keep on worshiping. Now, we might look at that and say, what a coward. What a loser. I mean, that's all he did. Couldn't he do more? Couldn't he change his world? Because he went year after year to the temple, or to the tabernacle at that time, his wife was there because she went with him. He was a godly husband. She prayed a prayer, God, I want a son. If you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. God granted her Samuel. Samuel went and lived at the tabernacle. Samuel was raised up by God to appoint one day King David the greatest king of Israel that they ever had, King David begins the lineage that would lead to Jesus Christ, the high king of all things. You want to change the world? Be an Elkanah. A long walk of faithful obedience, worshiping God. Never underestimate faithful, obedient worship. The dissatisfaction is a turning point. What we do next will determine the pilgrimage. Look ahead to Psalm 121 that we'll talk about next week. This follows right on the heels. The distress is introduced. The dissatisfaction is there. And then Psalm 121 comes in. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's a choice to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to live with our heads in the sand, blinded to the distress of this world. It's also easy to be distressed by the distress in this world and to scream and cry and wail and moan and complain. 
What is hard is the path of worship that the Psalms of Ascent are laying out for us. To be dissatisfied, but to turn to you and say, Hosanna, you are the one who saves. And so I pray if there's anyone here that is at that point of dissatisfaction in their own life, may they turn to Jesus Christ who entered this distress, this mess, and he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And he died on the cross to take the just punishment for our sins, to pay the price. And he rose from the grave promising eternal life to all who believe. Father, that is a truth worth following. That is a truth that sets us on a pilgrimage of following together as Christians, following Jesus Christ. It's a hard path, a path of worship, a path of trusting you. And I pray if anybody's living in that distress and longing for that hope, may they turn to Jesus Christ. And as we walk through the rest of the Psalms of Ascent, Father, teach us to truly worship you, not on our terms, but on yours. And to truly follow you along obedience in the same direction. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and King. Amen.